Um, well, good morning again. This morning we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 7, looking at verses 6 through 11. It's printed for you on page 11 in the ESV and also in the kids' version is there. We'll be referring to that throughout the uh, sermons. So you'll want to have that in front of you. And as you're turning there, you know, one of, one of my traditions as a, as a minister is that I like to take the first Sunday of the year and kind of make it like a New Year's challenge. You know, it's, it's part of the calling of a minister to, to dig into God's Word and to really kind of give you the text and an application of the text. But every once in a while, it's okay to kind of do like a broad theme and not necessarily dig in so much. And so I'm going to take that privilege in the first of the year, kind of, kind of do some broad themes and maybe call it like a New Year's challenge before we start digging into the book of Esther next week. I want, to, I want to give us a good starting point for our journey of faith this year. And that starting point is going to be the love of God for his people. I remember sitting in my very first day of seminary. I was so excited. And the way the seminary worked at the time is the people you had that very first class with, you were pretty much going to have the same classes with for at least two years. And if they were on the same track as you, all three years. These were going to be your compadres, your buds, your, your friends. And I have some great lifelong friends that I made that very first class. And I remember we're sitting there, very first class, and this godly old Pauline scholar gets up there. And the very first thing out of his mouth, I mean, like, how's this for an opener for a bunch of guys ready to start, you know, training for ministry, is you will never understand the Bible unless you understand this. And we were all like, whoa, he's giving it to us like right now. Here's the answer. Okay, so we're just now, we're ready for some grad school level work. Let's do this. And he goes, the hortatory is always based in the declarative. And he could tell, I wasn't alone. By the looks on all of our faces, he could tell we weren't getting it. So he goes, the imperative always rests in the indicative. And I was about to raise my hand, like, could you do it in sock puppets, maybe? And, and the guy next to me, I looked at him, do you know what he's talking about? Who's now, uh, he was an RUF minister for 20 years, 15 years, and now he's an Air Force chaplain. He goes, I don't know, just write it down, we'll figure it out later. I had no idea, I was so excited, but then much, much later, it clicked. Whenever there is a command in Scripture, an imperative, or an old English, a hortatory, an imperative, something you have to do. Whenever you're told to do something, it's always based in a truth of grace first, an indicative, a declarative truth. For example, the Ten Commandments. How do the Ten Commandments start? You better shape up. Here's how. No. What's the intro? I am the Lord your God. The relationship's already there. Who rescued you out of Egypt. The grace is already there. Based on that truth, now here are some indicatives. And the Bible is all like that. The instructions that we find in the Bible sometimes, these clear commands that we, these imperatives, those things that kind of make us kind of chafe a little bit. Like, I don't want to do that. Those, those are based on the truth of grace. And I'm telling you that because Deuteronomy 7 is a sermon that Moses gives. And the first five verses are some pretty harsh, in-your-face kind of commands, stuff to do. And I'm not skipping those. I'm telling you that they're there, but I want to zoom in on verses 6 through 11 because verse 6 through 11 are the grace, the indicative, the declarative truth of God's grace on which those semi-harsh commands are based. I mean, they're told in verses 1 through 5, this is one of those areas that people who don't like the Bible or don't like Christianity tend to turn to this chapter because it's, it's one of the places where God comes in and tells these 
invading Israelites, hey, go in and all these cities in this land, kick them out, kill them, and take their stuff. And there's really no way to put a positive spin on that. It's just God says to do it, and they do it, kind of. But verses 6 through 11 are the gracious truth behind that, the why of those kind of commands, the truth on which they are based. And so with that in mind, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as we look at Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 11. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And this is God's word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, passages like this can sometimes cause us questions. Lord, we pray that as we come before this text this morning that you would give us, you would give us your spirit, Lord, that we might submit ourselves to you and your, and your truth that you would reveal yourself to us in your word, Lord, that you would bring us conviction and you would bring us hope. Show us, Lord, the beauty of Jesus, whom the whole Bible is about. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So in this, after giving them their command, starting in verse 6, in his love, God declares who they are. And then they are to live out that identity in their love for them. That's how we see God declares who they are in his love, and then he shows them how to live that identity out in their reciprocal love for him. And that gives us our theme for today, which is this. We stand firm in the joy of who God says we are. Can't think of a better way to start a new year is the the anchoring truth that we stand firm in the joy of who God says we are. So let's jump into that. How do we get there? Where do we stand with God? I want you to look with me at verse 6. Verse 6 starts out and just says it right away. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I love how this text starts out. It doesn't say be holy. Try really hard. It says you are holy. It's a declarative statement of who they are. It just states, you are this. That's the truly radical identity of God's people. It's an established fact. It's who they are. It's an identity that is received as a gift. So where do we stand with God? Where he says we do. Now Christians in the room, hear that. You stand with God where he says you do, not where your fearful, doubting heart says you do. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are holy to God. 
Rest in God's declaration of who you are. Not in the HR director who lives in your heart who always gives you a bad evaluation. Not in your angst about your feelings, about your performance. See, what I'm talking about here is the, is the concept of identity. It's a very powerful idea in our culture. In fact, it may be currently the most powerful idea in our culture, the idea of identity. And because it's so powerful, I want to dig into it just briefly, so stick with me here. So our culture more and more rejects the idea of a received identity, something that comes from the outside. I mean, you know this. You live here too, right? You swim in this water. Don't let anyone else define you. Discover and fulfill your deepest longings, no matter what they are. It's a radical individualism, and it's the default of most of our neighbors. It's the idea of being authentic, right? Whatever your interior feelings are, until you make your exterior life match, you're not living authentically. So you can never have something outside of you name you. You have to find it inside of yourself. And Christianity is emphatic the opposite way, that identity is based on who God says we are. And verse 6 here is one of the places we get that idea, one of the many. So if, if, you're, if you're here this morning, if you're watching online, you're still kind of investigating Christianity. You would say you're not sure if you call yourself a Christian. That, that sentence, we are who God says we are, it kind of bothers you a little bit, doesn't it? It kind of grates at you a little bit. That's an external source, that, that, that an external source would dare to name you, goes against what many of us assume is true. Namely, that identity comes from within, not from without. It's the default mode of our culture. It's how most of our neighbors think, but unfortunately, it's not how humans work. We may say we don't care what anybody thinks. We get to name ourselves, but it's not true. We all look outside of ourselves to our chosen friend group, to our chosen tribe, to our chosen ideology, and we let that external source tell us who we should be. So the question is not, should we have an internal or external? It's which external gives us joy? Which external identity gives us hope, gives us substance, gives us gravitas? I mean, an identity based on what a group of people says is right and what your tribe says is right. Even if it's a good tribe, even if it's our tribe, if it's external and it's based on what they say, it makes you fragile. It makes you uncertain. It makes you insecure. It kind of makes you petty and mean. It's what creates cancel culture. You don't do what our tribe says. I got to attack you for that. Now, before your eyes glaze over, okay, here's why this matters. Here's why I'm talking about this. Because we have to choose between competing external identities. All the while fooling ourselves that we're doing it inside. No, no, I'm not doing it. I'm choosing my life. And it results in cancel culture. It results in hatred. It results in fragility. It results in our foolishness. But in our foolishness, verse 6 shows us that the Creator Himself comes and offers a solid identity from Him by grace. You are a people holy to the Lord your God, is what He offers. Now, that may be a bit too philosophical for some of you. Maybe like me, that first day of seminary, you're like, can you do it in sock puppets, maybe? So especially for our boys and girls who are here at this early service, you might be totally lost. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk through verse 6 together, looking at a couple of pictures. 
And these are pictures that you've, I've used before, but they so capture the, the zeitgeist, the spirit of our times, that I think they're very helpful. So in adults in the room, as we do this, there are some quotes in the reflective part of your bulletin in the inside cover. You might want to turn there because we're going to be referring to those as well. So the first picture is, of course, Elsa from Frozen. We've seen her before. We've used her a lot. But Elsa's song, Let It Go, it's all about identity. The sovereign self names itself. And she boldly proclaims what? No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And later on in the song she says, here I stand and here I'll stay. Let the storm rage on. It's the sovereign self naming itself, saying it doesn't matter what the world does. I will be who I will be regardless of others. The rest of the world is no longer her problem. And that song resonated with so many people because that is what our culture calls authenticity. Choosing an identity. Being your best self. But as the movie shows, it doesn't work. And it doesn't fulfill her. She proclaims, here I stand, and she stands alone. Isolated. And she causes great suffering by her sovereign self claiming authenticity against all others. But there's another, more famous, perhaps, usage of the phrase, here I stand. And it's in the next picture. 500 years ago this year, Martin Luther, a simple German monk, taught the gospel of grace rather than the exhausting religion of performance all around him. And for that, he stood before the most powerful men of his day. If you're looking at the quote on the front bulletin, okay, real quick, English is not German. It's not a diet of worms, okay? And that sounds like a joke. It's the diet of worms, okay? It's a, it's a political gathering, kind of like a court, kind of like uh, a political party, and they're judging him. And he has to submit to them or be assassinated, executed. And for strength, for courage, when they wanted him to conform, Martin Luther did not reach inside of himself as Elsa did. Instead, he rested in the truth of Deuteronomy 7, 6 by his own admission. He let God name him. And he said, here's the quote, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God And he went on to lead, to be one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, and the nearly one billion Protestants in the world today show that when he proclaimed, here I stand, he did not stand alone. I put those contrasting quotes there in the front of the bulletin and here, because every one of us in the room, and every one of us watching, and everyone you know, lives out of one of those two identities. Here's what it looks like practically. Culture says, fulfill your desires, be your authentic self. And we try to do that and it creates such pressure, doesn't it? I mean, turning things like money and and success and fame and accomplishment into things that make us fulfill and, and give us our greatest sense of purpose and authenticity, it turns those things into idols. What the Bible calls idols. We give our lives to those things. We serve them hoping for freedom, hoping for happiness, but an achieved identity, something we strive for, something we create, never fulfills us. Instead, it demands more and more of us. Until, like Elsa, we say, forget it. I'm just going to do what makes me happy and fulfilled. 
and forget everybody else. And we find ourselves completely alone and isolated, like Elsa. You see, we can't be completely self-fulfilled and be with other people. We have to choose. And like Elsa, what we find out is it becomes a prison of fear to say, I don't care what you think, I'm just going to live my own life. You know, we, we used to call that being a sociopath. Now they call it being authentic, authentic apparently. See, see, but the promise of the gospel is freedom from all of that. In God's love, identity is received instead of achieved from inside. In verse 6, God says his people are holy. And did you catch this? A treasured possession. That's how a parent speaks of a child. Something precious. And not in the creepy golem way, but in a kind parent way. By his grace, God says here in verse 6, not only you're holy, my people are precious to me. They're valuable to me. He names us his treasure. And when God names us, when we receive an identity from him, he cherishes us and it sets us free from striving. So where do we stand with God? We stand firm in the joy of who God says we are. So with that in mind, I want to read again slowly verses 7 through 8 from the mean Old Testament. And hear the grace just dripping from these two verses, starting in verse 7. He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. And redeemed you from the house of slavery. See, the essential difference between grace and religion, we'll call it, is right here. Religion says, do this stuff, be this person, jump through this hoop, fulfill these rules, and I will love you. There's no peace, because that's not love. But grace, based in love, says you can't do this stuff, you can't be this person, without help and because i already love you i'll help you be that person i'll help you do this stuff the commands are based on grace which comes first and that's what's going on in these verses these people weren't attractive to god he wasn't looking around the universe like those people are already obedient to me mine no he said who are the most backward-looking, redneck, can't-get-their-worldview-together, loser people who I can glorify myself by saving. Those people. Now, if I finish you, I just said verse 7. I, okay, I didn't write it. Out of his love for choosing people like that, he redeems them. Here's a great way to look at this. Here's a way that I think helps me look at this. God doesn't want a trophy wife, is what he's saying to his people. He's not looking for someone to make him look better. Someone who always has to be attractive, always has to perform well, who his value is based on their performance. That's not love, and that's not what God wants. And it's not what you want either, is it? Instead, God is like that person that many of us know on Facebook. Um, You know that person. They have ugly kids. And they put pictures of their ugly kids all over their Facebook feed. I would say that if you don't know that person, you might be that person, but I'm not going to say that. But you know it, right? And you're like, man, those are some ugly kids. But you know what? 
They're not ugly of their parents. What's that phrase we use? A face only a mother could love, right? And guess what, folks? We're that ugly kid, is what verse 7 and 8 tells us. And he loves the mess out of us anyway. And if you grabbed his phone and looked at his Facebook feed, our pictures would be all over it. He loves his ugly little kids. Hey, boys and girls, speaking of kids, not ugly kids, let's look together at your verses 7 through 8. Here's what this is saying. He selected y'all because he loves y'all, not because y'all are so lovable. Y'all aren't. Instead, the Lord is being loving and faithful. He rescued because he promised he would. Boys and girls, it's important that mom and dad keep their promises, isn't it? That they do what they say. Well, God keeps his promises too. He loved and rescued his people because he said he would and because he loves them. And that's just what we celebrated at Christmas, that God sent his son Jesus into the world to rescue us because he said he would. And he loves us. And that's what we're going to celebrate in this table in a few moments. Is that Jesus came and had a body which could be broken and bleed to rescue us. And we remember and we commemorate that in this table. See, we began with the question of where do we stand with God? And in a culture trying to squeeze joy and certainty from identity and authenticity, Christians get to stand firm in the joy of who God says we are. And be free from that pursuit of joy from authenticity but there's another question we have to deal with in this passage where do we stand with God and how can God stand with us because verse 10 and verse 11 are still in the text aren't they verse 10 is very clear that God takes seriously those who hate him who disregard him who despise him people may think they're neutral towards God God is never neutral towards people And so verse 10 is so harsh about hating God. So what does it mean to hate God? Well, verse 11 provides the definition. We don't have to look at our own creativity. Instead, look at the text itself. Look look at me at verse 11. What does it say? It says, You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So hating God means not being carefully obedient to his instructions, not to do his will. See, just like you, God does not appreciate hypocrisy. God does not like superficial relationships. If we give him lip service, but not our hearts, if we live lives opposed to his word while singing songs of his praise, he hates that. Now, there's a big problem here. Have you caught it yet? I'll give you a hint. The big problem is on page 7 of our bulletin. Because page 7 of our bulletin is for people who hate God. Because we've sinned against Him because we don't do His will. We've broken verse, and so we have to come and own that reality. What do we do? We are mired in sin and hypocrisy. We are extremely uncareful to keep His commandments. We excel at ignoring His instructions, don't we? Verse 11 makes verse 10 really scary. We have to confess that by God's definition, we do hate him. We, we, we do what we want to do, when we want to do it, not what he wants. What do we do? 
Well, it takes us right back to the identity question of Elsa versus Martin Luther. Are we going to be Elsa and proclaim before our Creator, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free of you? Or are we going to be like Martin Luther and have that love of God name us in our weakness and fear? So really it's a question of grace versus performance. God's identity is given to us by grace. He identifies his people as holy because of the work of Jesus. Passages like this are looking ahead a couple thousand years to the coming of the Redeemer who would fulfill it. We get to look back a couple thousand of years and understand it that way through Jesus. So it doesn't matter if this is the first time you were here or if you've been sitting in that chair for like 30 years. We all tend to read passages like this and think religious performance. I have to do all this stuff so I don't get verse 10. We forget the grace of verses 6, 7, and 8, don't we? And so what I want to do is I want to end by walking back through this text, showing us how Jesus is actually the answer to our thirst for identity and how we can stand firm in this world. So in verse 6, God declares Israel holy. The rest of the Bible in the New Testament specifically tells us that Jesus is the new Israel. The chosen one of God, the one who was tested, and the one who was declared holy, and that united to him by faith, we receive that holiness. Verse 7, Israel wasn't impressive or great to earn God's favor. The Bible tells us in many places Jesus was not an impressive man. But he was the beloved son of God and united to him. We receive that same spirit of love and that same sonship and daughtership. Verse 8, Israel was rescued because God loved him, loved them. Jesus is the ultimate object of God's love. And according to promise, he was led out of death back into life in the resurrection by God's love. Rescuing us from guilt, from sin, and from the fear of death. And all who are united to him by faith receive that in him. In verse 9, God declares that he is faithful to love those who love and obey him. And Jesus is the ultimate lover and keeper of God's commandments. And so he guarantees for us the faithfulness of God to us. Verse 10, God declares that he will destroy those who hate him. And Jesus on the cross became our hatred of God. He became our disobedience. And so the book of Isaiah specifically tells us God was pleased to crush Jesus for the sin he had become. Jesus felt the weight of every word of verse 10. And all those who are united to him by faith have died with him in their hatred of God. Verse 11, Israel should be careful to obey God's will. And Jesus was careful to do God's will his whole life. And united to him, we are counted as fully obedient as well. That's the gospel. God saw the inability of his people to obey, and so he sent a redeemer to obey for us. It sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? But it isn't. Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's instructions for God's people, and his obedience is credited to us. God then names us as his holy people because of what Christ has done. And so when God looks upon you, he is perfectly pleased. He can say, verse 6, you are holy to me. You are my treasured possession because he sees his people in Jesus in whom he is well pleased. 
Oh, if you have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, that is your identity. Rest in God's declaration of your worth and your value that is available to you because of Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate in this supper. That's what we get in the gospel. Oh, do you want that? It's yours for the taking when you embrace Jesus by faith. Let's pray together. And gracious God and heavenly Father, your gospel is amazing. Your word cuts us and then lifts us up. And it can be an exhausting journey, Lord, but it can be so fulfilling as well. Lord, thank you for showing us just a hint of your fierceness in Deuteronomy and then overwhelming us with your love. Lord, we pray that we would never be so used to the message of of the gospel grace that our ears don't burn at it and our hearts don't rejoice at it. Lord, would you once again show us the beauty of Jesus? And we ask this in his name. Amen.